speak the charm of make charm of make charm of make charm. There will come a time on the planet Earth when science and technology will be long forgotten. This is the Arnamancy Podcast. Join your host, Reverend Eric, in his diverse array of amazing guests in an exploration of tarot, magic, the occult, and the history of Western esotericism. The Arnamancy Podcast exists thanks to the support of generous listeners like you. Please consider supporting this podcast for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash arnamancy. Welcome back to the Arnamancy podcast. Uh, I'm Reverend Eric, and my guest today is Dr. Nick Litursky. We're going to talk about treasure, which is going to be cool. So Dr. Nick Litursky is an, is an adjunct senior lecturer in psychology at the California Institute of Integral Studies and a professional spiritual guide. They hold a doctorate in depth psychology with emphasis in Jungian and archetypal studies from Pacifica Graduate Institute, as well as a master's in spiritual guidance from Sophia University and a Juris Doctor from the Northern Illinois University College of Law. Their research interests include depth psychology, Depth Psychological Reflections on Spirituality, Magic, Paleolithic Cave Art, Sexual Orientation, and Gender Identity. And Nick's work has been published in multiple professional journals. And their recent book, Method Infinite, Freemasonry, and the Mormon Restoration, was published by Greg Cofford Books in 2022. It is a handsome volume. Dr. Nick, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I am excited to have you on. Um... The, this is a topic that I uh, we're going to be talking about some stuff that I don't know a whole lot about, uh, but I find super fascinating, and I have questions that uh, hopefully you will be able to answer or tell me to go dig a hole and bury myself in it for for later generations to find, <laughs> or better or better yet, dig a hole and find treasure in it, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. Mormons and hidden treasure and all that kind of stuff. Like, uh, I think that probably people are, are somewhat aware of the vast and strange esoteric and occult underpinnings of, of very early Mormonism or the invention of Mormonism. And I would also say, you know, you had that uh, amazing interview on what magic is this uh, last year, I believe Yes. about this. Uh, and so we're not going to give the overview of uh, Joseph Smith being a, uh, a, a weird boy wizard. If people want to learn more about that, they can absolutely, they should, they should absolutely go listen to your interview with Doug. It was incredible and very informative and a really, really good kind of introduction to all of the weirdness that, that early Mormonism has to offer. Uh, so there'll be a link to that episode in the show notes. And then what we're going to talk about in particular is treasure hunting and the Smith family's interaction with that or involvement in it, because it's really fascinating. So I want to start by learning, or let's tell the audience about uh, treasure hunting in general and in specific in America. So treasure hunting within the context of magic has a long history uh, going back into Europe. Uh, But, you know, coming over into the new world in in young America, um, it, it carried some really interesting additional overtones. There's a context for all of this. As people came over with those traditions, 
couple other things were going on. Number one was Freemasonry. Freemasonry is very prominent in the early days of the Republic. And those who are familiar with Freemasonry will know that there's a legend of a lost word. You know, some will relate this to the to a sacred name of God. This lost word is something that Masons are metaphorically supposed to pursue. But the legends specifically talk about this lost word being possessed by King Solomon, King Hiram of Tyre, and Hiram of Ith, the architect of the temple. With the murder of Hiram of Ith, they were not able to pass this word on because there was already a promise between the three that would only be conveyed in the presence of all three. So as the legends develop further, you get the idea that Hiram Abiff had some idea that he would be murdered, and he wrote this this grand omnific word, the master's word, on a golden delta, a triangular golden plate, which he then hid deep in a vault. This legend is meant to be metaphorical within Freemasonry, but many people in the late 18th and early 19th century understood Masonic legend to be history. They, they did not understand it to be metaphorical. So there's an idea that somewhere out there, there is this artifact that has the word. The word is through a name. And of course, if you go into a lot of ancient cultures, having the name of any being means you have the power of that being hmm. uh, and, or the ability to control that being. So, Finding this name in a historical sense becomes very important. Give you an idea, this ends up carrying forward, for example, into the establishment of Dartmouth University, which was Wait, established really? by Freemasons. Yes. Oh. If you look at the original seal of Dartmouth, um, you actually have an, a picture of a Native American holding a book or a plate and a number of people following him as he's walking. Oh. This plate is a representation of this idea because by that time, there were already explorers such as James Adair writing and speculating that the Native American peoples, the indigenous peoples of this continent, were descendants of Israel. Huh. So an idea forms that these people who came from Israel to this continent may have brought with them artifacts such as Hiram Abiff's Golden Delta. Huh. So the, the idea carries through. So that's one of the currents that's going on. Another aspect, again related to the Native American peoples, is burial mounds. Right. Because people were people were digging into these burial mounds and they were finding artifacts. They were finding treasure. Yeah. You know, valuable valuable items. Uh, not understanding completely in archaeological sense, but certainly understanding in monetary value uh, of these. <laughs> right. So, so if you come over with these traditions already of discovering treasure, and some people are actually finding treasure in what are actually burial mounds, that just builds upon and increases the power of, of these legends. Yeah. These currents, these currents come together, and you have an idea that it's just possible that the master's word, that this sacred word that's been lost, this powerful name, just might be somewhere hidden under the earth, 
on this continent because this is a special place and this is where God is doing things. <laughs> you brought up the Masonic burial thing. And the uh, one of the things that's really interesting about that is um, Hiram Abiff's uh, buried treasure isn't the only Masonic buried treasure. There are other degrees that have like other things being buried. And then also you have like the Rosicrucian stuff. Like there's this concept of like somewhere is, you know, Christian Rosenkreutz's buried tomb. Like uh, there's a lot of esoteric lore regarding hidden treasures buried in right. strange, mysterious, forgotten places. Yeah, exactly. And then, of course, there was the simple lore or the simple lure of finding treasure uh, for its mm -hmm. mon for purely monetary value. So, in Vermont, in in the late 1700s, early 1800s, you have the family of Joseph Smith Sr. And Joseph Smith Sr.'s family were religious rebels of a sort. Uh, they were big fans of Thomas More's writings. They tended to um, avoid the state church that existed you know, prior to the First Amendment uh, going into effect upon the states. Mm -hmm. And in fact, there's documents of the family explicitly uh, withdrawing from the state church that they won't pay taxes to the state church. Huh. Yeah. And all this time, these le these legends, these Masonic legends are circulating. There are Masons in the family. Joseph Smith Sr. in Vermont was not able to become a Mason. A couple possible reasons for that. Number one, there's some evidence that he may have had a drinking problem. And so that may have been reason for him not to be uh, allowed when he petitioned the lodge. Another is he had an episode where he was uh, either growing or or actually collecting ginseng, mm -hmm. uh, which even today is done in that part of the, of the country. And had collected quite a good crop of it. At the time, there was a high market for it in China because it was believed to cure the plague. And so he he made arrangements for his crop to be, which had been dried and prepared, to be taken to China. And the proceeds brought back to him. An individual uh, connected with that ship basically swindled him out of the entire proceeds. You know, took ah. took Jameson and the and the money for himself. That individual happens to have the same last name as somebody in the local lodge, uh, where mm. Joseph Senior was blackballed when he attempted to join. So either of those things or both could have been, could have come into play. Right, right. Um, the other the other possibility is that lodge, Federal Lodge Fifteen, was fairly sophisticated. Um, Solomon Chase, for example, who later became a chief justice of the Supreme Court, uh, was from that lodge. Uh -huh. so you had some movers and shakers there. And Joseph Sr. clearly believed in the legends of Freemasonry at, as being historical. And they may have simply found him embarrassing in that regard. <laughs> right. Okay. So, so nonetheless, he is he gets involved in treasure digging. Later on uh, in the 1830s, he will tell people that I know more about treasure digging than anybody else on earth. I've been doing this for 30 years. And so it places it right right at the turn of the beginning of the 19th century. Mm -hmm. He is having dreams uh, that relate to, you know, lacking just one thing, you know, one piece of information 
and he runs to get paper in his dream and it wakes him up before he can before an angel can tell him <laughs> this uh, this piece of information but he's, he's all deeply involved in this thing and during this time in these small vermont towns these masonic legends are showing up in the local newspaper so they're not hidden they're being put out there in public uh, from the legendary standpoint right joseph senior is obviously very interested in these legends and very interested in obtaining the lost word mm-hmm. he at the time of the organization of the grand lodge of vermont there's a huge upswing in the name in naming of young boys hiram and there's various spellings because spellings all over the place at that time uh, but it just happens that joseph senior has a son and that they name hiram right at that time <laughs> so he was kind of following the uh the trend huh <laughs> absolutely absolutely but you know this is an illustration of how committed they were frankly to the to the lore mm-hmm. a few years later uh, joseph jr is born and when joseph jr was born he had uh, the placental sac was still intact over him they, they called that being born with a call at the time and being born with a call in folklore was representative of being a prophet or a seer. Or a witch. Yes. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, according to others uh, who wrote their recollections later, Joseph Sr. promptly ran around town saying the day would come when uh, that this child was going to be a prophet and the day would come when they would find him a stone that he could look into and see anything in the world that he wanted to see. So Joseph Smith Jr. is trained from the cradle in this lore and in this right. context in, and in who he needs to become. Mm-hmm. As the family proceeds on, they end up moving to Palmyra, New York, eventually. And Palmyra was known, by the way, as a Masonic town. It was right on, it was during the con- final construction of the Erie Canal, which went right through the town. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of Masonic activity going on there. I've seen once, and I haven't been able to find again, uh, a really cool picture of a Erie Canal boat with a uh, square encompasses on the back, sort of, you know, like Masons these days have their little Masonic decals on their cars it was a it was a canal boat with the square encompasses yeah i was sort of like oh crap i guess we didn't invent that (laughs) it's been around for a while (laughs) i would love to find that picture again i'm I'm sure it was in some masonic book that i was going through and you know it totally makes sense that it would happen but it's it was just such a quirky funny thing to see (laughs) when when joseph senior takes his family to palmyra new york he it appears um did join the lodge at a nearby town called Canandaigua. Now, we cannot absolutely prove it was him. A a name like Joseph Smith, as you can imagine, is not the most uh, unique name in the world. There were a couple other (laughs) people, there were a couple other people in the region with that name. But, you know, from my research and the research of my co-authors, it, we really think it's extremely likely it was him. Mm -hmm. Uh, He joins Ontario Lodge in Canandaigua. Ontario, and this is at a crucial time, uh, because within a few years, Ontario Lodge would meet to discuss the fate of a man named William Morgan, uh, who your <laughs> listeners may be familiar with. Yes, yes, I'm sure some of them are. 
if not, it's a really, really fascinating story. I'll, I'll, I'll find a, a really good summary of the, the whole thing and put the link in the show notes. So we don't, we don't really have to get into the Morgan, uh, affair, but, yeah. um, yeah. but there is a really cool connection, which I know you're going to tell us about. To well, there is. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's possible, not known by any means, but possible that Joseph Smith Sr. is sitting in Lodge as they're talking about what to do about William Morgan. Um, it's also known that one of the co-conspirators uh, ended up in jail later. At the same time that Joseph Smith Sr. was briefly jailed for a debt uh, and shared a cell with that individual and tried to convert him to Mormonism, actually, um, <laughs> without success. <laughs> but it gives you an idea because after the disappearance of William Morgan, uh, you see the rise of the anti-Masonic party. You see a lot of activity right in and around that Palmyra area. Mm -hmm. People are actually acting out Masonic rituals in public on the streets. They're writing exposés. So where the family has already been formed in this legend, uh, Hiram, the older brother, has definitely become a Mason in the lodge there in Palmyra by this time. Joseph Jr. is fully exposed to all this. And what's really interesting is you know, Mormonism begins there in Palmyra and the nearby, the next town of, Man of Manchester, sort of right on the border there where things are happening. And, you know, the Mormons are driven from place to place uh, until they get to Nauvoo, Illinois. Uh, it's their last location prior to moving out to Utah. Every place they settle is noted for having a number of these Native American burial mounds mm -hmm. because they're they're still looking. So this is this is after the Golden Plates, after the revelation of yes. uh, Marani, Maroni, Moroni, whatever yes. Moroni, Moroni. Yeah. They're still digging. Yes. So the yep. the Mormon treasure hunting continued. Yes. So to so give you an idea, oh, when they get that's in, crazy. In the early in the early eighteen thirties, they get uh, they they've shifted their center of operations to Kirtland, Ohio, and they build a temple there. Not not just a regular church house, but something they actually consider a temple to God as in Solomon's temple. Uh-huh. And, and, and there are aspects of the architecture that are clearly influenced by Freemasonry, by the way. In the middle of the night, Joseph Sr. gets some of his buddies, who are also church members by that time, they go, they go into the temple with their digging materials, <laughs> place them on an altar in the temple, and bless them. Whoa. For the purpose of treasure digging. So Joseph Sr. totally bought into the church. Yes. So they were, and they were then using, I, I love this. I love this because, it, you know, I mean, so many of the, um, of the grimoires have like these whole things about like getting your tools blessed by a priest. And so they're sort of like, Psh, we don't need no, we don't need no papists here. Let's just go do this ourselves. Well, especially when Mormonism has Mormonism has a lay clergy, so right, every right. quote unquote worthy uh, white at the time male uh, held priesthood authority. Right, right, and okay. per and particular particularly the Smith family was considered special, and of course uh, Joseph Senior as the patriarch of the family was all the more special. So yeah, they they didn't. You're right. They didn't need to go to a. Uh, <laughs> 
Catholic mass, <laughs> as far as they were concerned. Uh, does that also mean that, like, a modern practitioner, if they're interested in doing some of this stuff, they could just get, you know, a J. Random Mormon to come and bless their tools for them? <laughs> <laughs> I guess the, the J in that would have to stand for Jack, huh? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, but you know, and, and, and mainly we're you know that that's jumping ahead a little bit, but it gives you the point because uh-huh. that's the point where Joseph Senior says, "Hey, I've been doing this for thirty years." Yeah, yeah. But you know, while they're still back in New York, while while Joseph Smith is still a young person, the family is deeply involved in the in the lore of treasure hunting. Joseph mm-hmm. Senior is out there leading digs. He is trying to teach people how to use dowsing rods. Uh, we have a man named P- Peter Ingersoll who left his recollection that he really didn't believe in this treasure digging stuff. But Joseph Senior talks him into going out with him into the fields and basically tries to teach him how to douse. Uh huh. We have one of the more you know really elaborate descriptions we have is from a man named William Stafford. And I should say these descriptions are affidavits uh, that were collected by a man named E.B. Howe. And E.B. Howe was a disaffected Mormon uh, and compiled a book called Mormonism Unveiled that was supposed to you know, destroy the Mormon church. Part of what he did was went back to all the re- neighbors where the Smith family had lived and got them to talk about the family. Uh-huh. And so some some things are salacious. You know, you, you have to kind of consider all these sources in context. But one thing that does come up over and over again in the affidavits is the family's involvement in treasure hunting. So William Stafford leaves one of the most detailed explanations because he actually went on one of the digs. He talks about how late at night, he and the others go out to the site that Joseph Sr. has picked out. Joseph Sr. proceeds to put a circle of metal rods driven into the ground Mm -hmm. and then marks out a smaller circle inside and explains that this is supposed to contain the spirit that is guarding the treasure. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Joseph Jr., who by this time is a young teenager, is inside the house. He's He's not out digging. He's inside the house. And he is using what was then called a peep stone or a seer stone. Mm-hmm. He is he's sitting there with his stone scrying the location of the treasure. And so you have Joseph Sr. going back and forth between the circle and the house to get instructions from Joseph Jr. who's watching what the spirit is doing. Uh-huh. But the, the, okay. treasure, the treasure guardian spirit. He comes, he's coming back out. He's walking around the circle. William Stafford says he was muttering some words under his breath that they couldn't understand. Mm-hmm. And then proceeds to tell them exactly where to dig. They're told, and this is right in contact with early legends, that they have to do this in strict silence. You know, there's a number of restrictions, a number of things to be careful of mm-hmm. in this process. The understanding of the treasure lore is if in any point you disobey, you disobey those instructions, number one, you will not get the treasure. Right. The, the lore, not only, from, not only from some of these witnesses, but many others, talk about treasures actually being moved in the ground. In some cases, hearing them rumble as they moved off into the ground, away from where <laughs> they're digging. Uh-huh. 
So, you know, they, these individuals digging with William Stafford did not find treasure. And, you know, Joseph Sr., again, going back and forth between the dig and Joseph Jr., a squire, comes back and says, you know, oh, we made an error in, in this operation. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for cynics, uh, you know, this is just, okay, well, this is all just nonsense in, in the beginning and, and he's making excuses. But for the time and the context, this was this was very sincere, right? Yeah, you know, this this was understood from the grimoires and such that you had to do things correctly, or else you were not going to be able to influence the spirit that was guarding the treasure to turn it over to you. It's like Stephen Skinner's wet dream, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. <laughs> but I mean, you know, he he always yeah. makes this big uh, emphasis on sure. um, on following like, uh, you know, grimoire rituals, like exactly down to the letter, like getting everything precisely right, et cetera, et cetera. Which, you know, you honestly in with modern practitioners, you see zero uh, percent of the time pretty much. Yeah. The, the other thing, it was not only that you would not get the treasure. It was that you placed yourself at mortal peril. Mm hmm. Oh, yeah. So many of the records of the time from these digs talk about engaging in the dig, doing everything, and that, you know, something not getting quite right. Somebody happens to speak a word, for example. That's a really common one, is that somebody doesn't observe mm-hmm. silence. And the spirit guarding the treasure will manifest in some way, often as some sort of horrifying beast or loud noises various ways to to frighten the treasure diggers away uh-huh and there thereby you know prevent them from obtaining the treasure those sort of manifestations can happen even if you're doing things right as an effort to get rid of you mm-hmm. so as you read in the sources it's not only a matter of getting everything right it's also persevering enduring whatever that spirit might throw at you in, in order to obtain the treasure yeah right that you're after so do you know where were they getting these recipes or these these uh, instructions for treasure hunting? Was it sort of was it an oral tradition or is it coming out of like some specific uh, grimoire or some specific thing like that? So some of the things that show up in the accounts of the Smith family's treasure digs uh, seem to parallel Ebenezer Sibley's. A new and complete illustration of the celestial sciences. Okay, and, and that book had been widely published, multiple editions. Uh, would have been fairly easy for the family to come in contact with, quite honestly. Okay, and, okay, and we, that's we, the we, the brick, right? That's that huge book that you showed that you had it when you gave your talk. Exa- the exactly, enormous the, one, <laughs> the giant thick one. Yes, yeah. Um, we we know that the family had access of some sort to that book because they have magical parchments uh, that take items directly from that book later on, mm-hmm. um, as well as Francis Barrett's The Magus, but The Magus doesn't really get into treasure digging. They also um, had access to uh, other possible works, but at the same time, there are things going on in some of their digs that I've not been able to specifically source yet. So, for example, you know, driving metal rods into the earth in a circle. Mm-hmm. Uh, is not something I've come across yet in, in the grimoires yeah. as a way of marking the circle. 
Yeah, I don't think um, I have either. Um, it makes a lot of sense since spirits are adverse mm-hmm. to iron. So if you're driving these iron uh, rods into the ground, then you know, it seems like a, a pretty uh, powerful way to keep them contained. Uh, but mm-hmm. I've not seen that as an instruction anywhere. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think, you know, I know that the Sworn Book of Honorius has some uh, unusual circle descriptions sometimes, but I don't remember Iron Rods. That's kind of yeah. a cool addition. Yeah, there's another situation where um, they determine that a sacrifice is needed. Yikes. Depending on which account you read, it's either a black dog or a black sheep that they obtain. Mm-hmm. One account does suggest that they obtained a black sheep from a neighbor. Yeah, said we we need this. <laughs> Is this like obtained with finger quotes, sort of? <laughs> no, they didn't. They didn't steal it. Um, but uh-huh. you know, but they they uh, borrowed it long term, shall we say? Um, you know, so there's there's one there's one account that suggests that there's another account that it was actually a black dog that they used for lack of having a sheep. Um, but you know, slit the throat of the animal and actually sprinkled its blood around the circle. And, and you know, we do see some similar things like uh, to that in some of the uh, documents that are out there. Mm-hmm. What they're doing is a, is a combination of different traditions. You, know, you have Joseph as the young virginal seer. That, that's a tradition that shows up in many of these grimoires. You also have things showing up in the family's practices that come out of uh, German powwow. Mm-hmm. Okay, which, which is already you know which is already starting to spread by that time. There are three parchments that were passed down in the family uh, from the time of those years in Pal. They appear from to be from those t- from the time of those years in Palmyra, mm-hmm. and they were passed down. Hiram, the older brother, ended up with them, and they were passed down through Hiram's lineage up until modern day. Two of them are simple charms against thieves mm-hmm. uh, that we see in multiple grimoires and chat books uh, as far as exactly how they're done. But they specifically cite a piece, a, a, a versicle that's used in uh, Albertus Magnus. Oh, interesting. Okay. And... and that doesn't show up anywhere else. It's it's referred to by scholars as the St. Peter bind them parchment. Mm-hmm. And if you look in Albertus Magnus, there is a charm against thieves. It involves Mary, uh, the Virgin Mary, and has this, you know, bind them repetition and reference to Peter three times. So they're clearly getting some influence as well from German powwow. But they are bringing these traditions together. They're also getting oral traditions. Okay. There are, indiv- there are, there are individuals coming through the community. Uh, one of the most uh, well-known was a man named Lumen Walter. And uh, I was just at Lumen's grave in May. Lumen Walter came from money. And his father sent him over to Europe to be educated. Went to some of the finest schools in Europe. And by some accounts, came back a a, a, a misanthrope. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, there are stories from more than one source of him uh, 
having incredible uh, profane language. Uh huh. You know, famously known for his swearing, but at the same time, there are there are accounts of him coming through Palmyra and the surrounding regions with his ancient books. Oh, that that taught various modes of healing and treasure seeking and these sort of things. Um, there's there is there are links uh, in some of the witness accounts between him and Joseph Jr. that he may have been a mentor of sorts to Joseph Smith Jr. Mm-hmm. Okay, difficult to pr- difficult to prove, but this is what some of the wit- you know some of the witness statements come up with. By this time. They're li- when they're living in Palmyra, there are, you know, it's a hilly area. It's not flat by any means. Mm-hmm. That area is not so much uh, burial mounds, however. A lot of what you see there are actual uh, glacial drumlins. Okay. So they're, they're heaps of glacial deposits. And there's one in particular that attracts a lot of attention among the people there. At the time, it didn't have a name. Uh, it goes on later to be called the Hill Camorra because of a Book of Mormon association. Uh-huh. But people already had the idea that this hill had treasure buried in it. And, of course, they, they didn't know that it was glacial deposit. You know, To them, it was, looked, looked like it could be one of these large burial mounds because it's a very uniform slope sort of hill. Yeah, yeah. And people were already going there and digging at various times. Lumen Walter was one of these people who had dug on the hill Ah. and had been unsuccessful. And there's an account that one time he is sitting in a tavern there talking with some of his associates. And Joseph is also there in the tavern. And he is frustrated. Lumen Walter is frustrated that he can't find whatever treasure is in the hill. But points to Joseph Jr. And, and in his colorful language, you know, says something to the effect of, well, that son of a bitch will be the one who finds it. And is that the hill where Joseph found the tablets? Yes. Yes. That's where the oh. hill, that's the hill where Joseph finds the plates. Hmm. Right. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, one of the things that I find like so incredibly fascinating about the connection between treasure hunting and uh, treasure hunting magic and Mormonism is that without the treasure hunting magic, the Mormonism origin story just falls apart. Right. Like you need it. You need to have, you need to have the Smith family be a bunch of treasure wizards. Otherwise you don't get, (laughs) you don't get Mormonism. (laughs) That's, That's really true. I mean, it's interesting for myself. I was I was Mormon for many years, and mm-hmm. yeah, you know, I, I myself, you know, did I did leave the LDS Church uh, eventually, um, but I still have a lot of uh, admiration for the tradition and a lot of respect for Joseph. To me, Joseph was a, was brilliant, regardless uh-huh. of religious claims. He was a genius. Mm-hmm. Um, I can see that. You know, but when I when I look at this treasure hunting era. This this early treasure hunting that's going on, I can't help but say, okay, he, he had something happening. He had some sort of experience. Mm-hmm. You know where that may have gone in the long run, and, and how much he may have um, elaborated on the story <laughs> is <laughs> anybody's guess. But he, but the origin stories of 
Mormonism, as you say, are magical stories. Mm -hmm. You know, Joseph, at the age of about 17, having already uh, allegedly seen a vision of God and Jesus, at the age of 17, uh, according to the official record, you know, feels like he's made a lot of mistakes, he's committed sins, and he prays to know he's standing before God. And an angel comes down, you know, through the roof of the cabin. Um, and tells him his sins are forgiven and that he's going to find these this book written on golden plates mm-hmm. and and shows him in vision where the plates are hidden, tells him about them. This angel allegedly comes three times in the night repeating this message and and the following day uh, the following day he the angel appears again and says, "Why haven't you told your father about this and and gone?" To collect the to collect the plates, and he does tell his father. His father says, "Yes, do what the angel says." And Joseph attempts. <laughs> um, in reality, the the official story is cleaned up and you know adjusted to fit a mainstream religious audience mm-hmm. at a time at a time when there is increasing skepticism about magic. Right. So Joseph Sr., excuse me, Joseph Jr., when you look at the timing of this angel's visit, it's on the fall equinox. It is at the time of a full moon. Uh-huh. The astrological things are, are in place for treasure hunting. The family lived in a small cabin. I've been in the reconstructed cabin. The children all are upstairs. There's several children. For Joseph to have these three visitations in the night, they kept him up all night because they went on so long. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make a lot of sense, um, particularly when you think about the fact that in the 19th century, people had biphasal sleep patterns. They would go right. to right. sleep and then wake up in the middle of the night for a while and then go back to sleep. Well, I mean, couldn't the visitations have been um, in a dream? The very earliest descriptions use the word dream, mm-hmm. but okay. that goes away pretty. That goes away pretty quickly. Ah, because in addition to being skeptical, skeptical about magic, people are also uh, happy to dismiss dreams, right? Uh, too, I guess, huh? Yeah. yeah. Well, that that said, again, going back to the treasure lore. A dream thrice repeated mm-hmm. is verification that you need to trust it and you need to go look where the dream showed you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That sounds pretty... Yeah, exactly. But you know, everything about um, the, the circumstances, and I won't go into all of them here. I've done that in the other podcasts and such. Everything about those circumstances suggests that Joseph actually was trying to evoke a treasure spirit. Uh-huh. And, and that's essentially what you know appears to have happened for him was some sort of experience in, in response to his invocation. Okay. The, when he tries to go get the plates the next day, the first thing in his mind that the family is financially struggling when he sees these plates that are engraved on gold, allegedly, um, you know, first thing that comes to mind is, wow, you know, we can make money from this. Mm-hmm. 
And because of that, he is prevented from taking the place. He, he tries to, and he's actually knocked back forcibly. And, and the angel appears and tells him you can't have them because your heart's not pure yet. Oh, you, you, okay. you, didn't keep, you didn't keep yourself focused on the glory of God. So he's told he has to come back in one year from that time and bring the right person with him. So he's shown the right – at that point, he's told that the right person is the oldest brother in the family, Alvin, who's born before Hiram I told you about. Okay. So the next year, that date comes around, and, and he should be taking Alvin with him to the hill. And that, this is in September, uh, September 22nd. Um, Alvin inconveniently died in November of the, of the previous year. So that made it difficult to uh, take Alvin to the hill. What's sort of interesting is within days of that anniversary, Joseph Smith Sr. takes out a, an article or an advertisement, if you will, in the local newspaper runs it for several issues denying that they have dug up Alvin's corpse. <laughs> um, Methinks he doth protest too much. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it's, it's really interesting because he said he's, he claims that the rumor is that they dug up his corpse for dissection. And so he says, so I took my friends and we went there and we exhumed the, we opened up the grave so that they could all see that he's there still. And not dissected. Um, not dissected. And, of course, that way, any any disruption to the to the grave site, of course, now is, is blamed on the later exhumation, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Very so convenient. It, yeah. So it's, it's entirely possible, uh, although not provable, that Joseph, you know, may have tried, you know, actually bringing... Alvin's corpse. Alvin's uh, body. Wow. To to the hill. That said, even family members, you know, his uncle actually writes a letter chastising him for engaging in necromancy in order to obtain (laughs) this gold, this supposed gold Bible. Right, right. So, you know, this, these sort of ideas are floating around in the family and elsewhere. Joseph ultimately has to make four trips, you know, four annual trips before he is given the, you know, before he allegedly obtains the plates. And is it the, is it September 22nd every year or is it tied to like a moon or anything like that? Okay. Okay. Yeah. In subsequent years, it's always September 22nd. Which is, that's the autumnal equinox, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And what's interesting, I, I mentioned to you, the family has three parchments that have been handed down the most elaborate one of them, two of them, like I said, are simple anti-thief charms. One of them has been called the holiness of the Lord parchment because it says holiness of the Lord on three sides of it. It's a very elaborate lamen. It's actually what it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It, it, it has, yeah. Oh, I was just going to say, I will make sure that there is a, picture of it in the show notes or link to in the show notes because it's incredible yeah. and viewers or listeners need to need to see it in order to understand what you're about to say about it i think right um, it has various magical seals taken from ebenezer sibley's book that we talked about others taken from a book called the astrologer of the 19th century that was published in 1825 mm-hmm. um, 
other things from Francis Barrett's The Magus. Again, it's a blending of several sources brought together. Right. Yeah. Uh, it also has an astrological chart, which appears to have actually been a geomagic casting. It, it oh. incorporated into it. Uh, and finally, it has, along with Holiness of the Lord on three sides, it has an inscription on those same three sides that nobody's ever actually been able to decipher. Uh, mostly because people have always taken it as a substitution cipher. Right, and, right, the weird sigils, yeah. Right, and as I've been working on that, um, what's finally come together, most likely this lawman was used not on that first visit of the angel, but on the annual visits after. Mm. Because, again, if you go back to the lore, once you have been able to successfully invoke a spirit and you, you've gone through all the elaborate ritual, then you don't have to go through all that again. You ask that spirit mm -hmm. for an abbreviated way to contact them. Right. And that generally contain that generally involves obtaining their sigil, which goes in your Libra Spiritum. Mm -hmm. Yep. And, and their, their secret name, whatever their name is. It, exactly. Yeah. So it is entirely possible. Um, I think it's entirely likely that the uninterpreted characters are actually the sigil or what Joseph believed to be the sigil of this angel. Okay. Okay. I have consulted with uh, several other magicians. Others have consulted with experts. Nobody has been able to sort them out um, as far as a substitution cipher. It's mm -hmm. just, it does not work as such. Okay. But once you go into the context of, of how this would have been used and how it's constructed, that's what it actually points to. It's, it's, it's actually the sigil of the spirit that it's intended to invoke. Mm -hmm. So, you know, these, these are the things that are passed down in the family. You know, physical artifacts uh, that, are, that are difficult to deny. Yeah, I got to say that the holiness to the Lord Laman is kind of more exciting than the Jupiter talisman that everybody makes a big deal oh, about to me. By far, I think. By far. Yeah, I think it it definitely aims at somebody who's got a deeper understanding of um of, you know, magical traditions and especially like grimoire stuff than uh than just copying a talisman out of out of the Magus. Right, right. Be cool. And, yeah, and and you know, the fact is these the Jupiter Talisman, for example, is very directly copied out of the Magus. We know because there's a small printing error in the Magus that shows up in Joseph's Jupiter Talisman. Mm -hmm. The seals and such that are in the Holiness of the Lord Lawman are a little more freestyle. Right. You know, they're recognizably from these sources, but they are they carry their own little differences. Mm-hmm. You know, one one star on the Laman, for example, is a combination of two stars that show up in the Magus. Oh, yeah, yeah. One gets called uh, a great figure, and the other call, gets called the greatest figure. And so, in drawing the Laman, <laughs> they merge them. <laughs> it's like a Stephen Colbert joke, almost. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it, it shows some creativity. It shows a deep knowledge of the sources of how to construct the Laman. Mm -hmm. 
D. Michael Quinn, uh, a marvelous historian, he passed a couple of years ago, really started to open up a lot of this research on Joseph Smith and, and treasure digging and magic uh, back in the late 80s and, and into the 90s. And he went with a trend of thought that Joseph simply did not have the uh, mental capacity <laughs> to do this sort of thing. You know, that this would huh. have had to be complete, had to be prepared by somebody outside of, of the family because they just weren't smart enough to do this. That's not according to the evidence. Uh, you know, the reality is, you know, Hiram was educated at a school operated, a school for ch for young men that was operated by Dartmouth the University. Uh -huh. um, Joseph Sr. was a school teacher part-time as, as well as Cooper. You know, the, the family actually, you know, they were educated some, for the time. Yeah, they, they, yeah. they were, yeah, they were reasonably well educated and they absolutely had the capacity to have created this. Mm -hmm. But regardless of whoever physically drew it, it's certainly put together very well for a purpose. The seals and such that are on this lamen are mostly protective. Mm -hmm. They're protections against witchcraft. They're protections of a, they're protections against seduction for a young virgin, which Joseph was at the time, <laughs> uh -huh. as far as we know. <laughs> Um, there are ways to there. There's the, the devil border, which is meant to contain the spirit. You know, all, all mm -hmm. these various things are in there. Somebody clearly put deep thought into its construction. Yeah, yeah, and into and into what should be included. And uh, the holiness to the Lord. I mean, I know that's not an uncommon um, phrase, but it, it when you first showed me when I first saw a picture of the the lamen, you, know, you showed it to me in your in your lecture that I saw, um, I immediately thought of, uh, the Holy Royal Arch in Freemasonry, yes. which yeah. is, uh, which is interestingly. So, so holiness of the Lord is a phrase that's used there a lot. A lot of times when you see Royal Arch lodge decorations, they have that, you know, sort of like in an arch. Um, and that is one of the Masonic degrees that directly deals with digging and finding treasure. Right. And so that's kind of cool. enough, Interesting enough, every Mormon temple, and again, Mormon temples uh -huh. are not ordinary church houses. Mormon temples are literally considered the house of God. Every yeah, Mormon yeah. temple above the doorway has an inscription that says, Holiness to the Lord, the house of the Lord. <laughs> that's cool. That's a, that's a really interesting connection. Huh. So here's something that I'm that I was sort of wanting to ask about for me, like before, uh, before listening to you talk about treasure, hunt treasure hunting and stuff, most of the treasure hunting material that I'd been familiar with was, uh, people using the lesser key of Solomon, like goetic spirits for treasure hunting. Um, but there's not really any evidence that, that that was the case with the, with the Smiths. Like they didn't have, they weren't working with, with what they considered like, infernal demons they were talking to like angels and stuff correct correct as far as oh, we know okay um that said there is a minor piece of evidence that joseph may have had access to a key of solomon manuscript later on oh. um, because <laughs> interestingly enough he, he he does something that is you know relates to freemasonry again because of this idea of a lost word 
but is actually quite specific to something in the Key of Solomon. He says that the great that the great key word of the priesthood was revealed to Adam and was the first word that Adam spake and was a word of supplication. Hmm. And you see that wording in there's a little Masonic spin on it, but you see that that wording in the Key of Solomon. Oh, so you think he might have had access later on? At some point. At some point, yeah. Well, we do know that uh, Key of Solomon stuff was and is used in a lot of um, folk magic, American folk magic. So that right. that could yeah. be, it's very possible, huh? Yeah, I mean, you cool. know, they, again, they obviously had connection. They obviously had access at some point to the Magus. Magus was published mm-hmm. in 1801. Copies certainly did make it over to the United States, um, but it's hard to trace. The only one that we have really secure knowledge of is one that is now held at the library company of Philadelphia. Okay. And we only, we only know because they obtained it in 1832, I believe, uh, from a collect from a book hoarder, quite frankly, (laughs) the the descriptions of the guy (laughs) basically about ready to die of books falling over. I'm going to be there someday. (laughs) I'm I'm working on it. Um, but, but they obtained it back that far. And I, I a few months ago, went there on the idea of – because Joseph spent some time in Philadelphia. Uh-huh. And so I thought, okay, well, what what if, you know, since he has the Jupiter Talisman later in life in the 1840s, you know, what if he's looking at the magazine then? Maybe, you know, maybe he didn't get access till then. I went and inspected their copy and what's really interesting is their copy of the Magus is missing major parts. The whole pa- the whole page in the Magus that has the seals, or excuse me, the talismans for the various planets is not in that copy. Uh huh. <laughs> which means he, which means he, even if he had seen that copy, he didn't didn't use it as a so- as a source. Yeah, yeah. Unless he took the page. Well, the, yeah, there's there's no indication. I mean, I look, there's no indication yeah. that somebody slid it out or anything. It's just not there. Oh, um, it's just like a printing problem, like the, the it's just well, not even in it. Well, early on, yeah. um, you know, time uh, 1801, when that book was published, your facsimiles weren't part of the signatures in, in printing the book. Mm. They okay. were actually placed in between at various pages before the book was bound. Okay. And so in some cases they're just not placed in uh, you know, mm. good example. My copy of the astrologer of the 19th century is missing one of the color plates oh. uh, out of, out of five that it sh- uh, five that it should have. There's uh-huh. absolutely no indication that it was ever there. Okay. And same thing happens. And even the Magus itself Depending on different copies, some will have four color plates and some have five color plates. Okay. There, huh. there are just some differences in, you know, the hand and manufacturing process where sometimes things got left out. Right. And, and that copy in Pennsylvania is, or Philadelphia is deeply flawed in the sense of missing things. Hmm. Yeah. You know, the, the family got a hold of the Magus at some point, um, much much earlier than, than yeah now. yeah they must have that's interesting okay so Joseph makes the holiness of the Lord Laman and he takes it with him to the treasure hunt 
on the to to his digging thing. Right. And you said he had to go back there four times. Correct. So the first time he didn't have a pure enough heart. Second time he didn't have the right person. Right. He's, the he's third told, time he's told to come back with the right person again. And uh-huh. he, at that point, he's sort of left to, to guess who the right person is. Yeah, and, because you know the necromancy didn't work. Yeah, well, he come, guess what? He comes back with another magician. <laughs> oh, who does he come back with? Um, and and I, I knew I just I'm blanking the name of the other gentleman. We'll just call him Enoch Root. <laughs> it, it's, it's a, I'm sorry. It's another magician who is associated with the Smith family. You know, from some of the witnesses of the time. He goes up there with Joseph. I don't. I don't. I don't believe he's Lumen. I believe he's the other guy. But he, you know, tells Joseph to look in the box and see if there's anything other than the place. Uh huh. And and Joseph allegedly sees at this point a pair of essentially spectacles, uh, two large crystals. Uh huh. Held together is held together in a golden bow of sorts. He later on, much later on, refers to this as the Urim and Thummim. Earlier, it's just the interpreters. Uh huh. Okay. And he u- allegedly uses these to interpret the Book of Mormon, at least at first. Later on, he's just using his seer stone that he had used for years in, in the treasure hunt. Uh-huh. Um, but again, what's interesting is, you know, this is he's finding these crystals, these peep stones, if you will. And by 1825, right in the middle of him making his treasure uh, areas visits to the hill the astrologer of the 19th century comes out and has an elaborate description of how to make a scrying device using various crystals uh-huh. and says this this is the urim and thummim described in the bible <laughs> it gets very explicit <laughs> about that um, uh-huh. that that being the same book from which a mars talisman is taken for to be included on the holiness of the Lord parchment. So all, all these things okay. weave together. Yeah. 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 But you know, Joseph's not able to get it when this magician comes, then he's shown the right person. And the right person is a young lady uh, who he doesn't recognize immediately, but then he is hired uh, to go on a, tra- to guide another treasure dig uh-huh. in Pen- in Pennsylvania. By a man named Josiah Stoll. Josiah Stoll has heard legends of a silver mine that was left by the Spaniards in his area and wants help digging for that. And and the fact that he he sends messengers up to Palmyra, New York, to hire Joseph, that alone tells you that Joseph has had enough success as a treasure hunter and scryer that his reputation. So he's kind of... Got a little bit of fame as a right. as a treasure yeah. hunter. Okay, exactly. Hmm. Which is which is one of the areas where you know um, some critics of of Mormonism just automatically say, "Well, if, if he says he's doing this, then he's obviously a fraud." And yet, yeah, you know, he he evidently had enough success in what he was doing that he built a reputation that went you know uh, clear into mm-hmm. another state. Josiah Stoll hires him. He goes down there to work. He boards uh, with 
one of the people associated with the treasure hunt, one of the people basically funding the treasure hunt, mm-hmm. named Isaac Hales, and immediately falls for Isaac Hales' daughter, Emma, and recognizes her as the person, the right person that the angel has shown him. So is Emma Hales, does she, do she and Joseph end up being, like, did, are they? They marry. A thing? Yeah. Okay, so, yeah, so, so that's the, probably also an important part of the birth of Mormonism, huh? Like, oh, without yes. without treasure hunting, yeah. Joseph Smith Jr. never finds his true love. <laughs> There's that as well. Yeah, well, one of, yes. Yeah, <laughs> one of, well, sure. <laughs> um, but yeah, you know, he, he, wants, he wants to marry Emma, and, and it's sort of funny because her father will not allow it, in part because Joseph has been acting as a treasure squire. But the funny thing is, if you look at the contract under which Joseph uh-huh. was hired, Isaac Hale was part of funding the treasure dig. Yeah. So he's sort of, you know, being sort of being two-faced on all this. Joseph and Emma elope. Oh. Uh, because, because daddy won't give permission. And ultimately, uh, after Joseph has her back up in New York, September 22nd rolls around again, and he brings her with him to the hill. They they go late at night. He dresses all in black. Um, uh-huh. Very get, romantic. Get, <laughs> very, very neck romantic. <laughs> very neck romantic. <laughs> um, get, gets a black horse with a switch tail. Again, part of the lore. Uh-huh. And, and to to draw a wagon with him and Emma in it. And he makes her stay in the wagon while he climbs up the hill. It's a good sized hill. And uh-huh. after, after about an hour, you know, she loses sight of him, those trees on the hill and such. After about an hour, he comes down with a little bundle, you know, wrapped up in cloth under his arm. He did it. And they, they take off from there. And he allegedly did it. Um, they Sweet. take off at, <laughs> they take off at that point. Um, he hides it in a hollow log before they go home, and then tells his uh-huh. family tells his family, you know that that he has finally found this and how wonderful it is. And this is the story of the plates. You know, other other treasure seekers, other scryers believe that he has them mm-hmm. enough so that they are chasing him and trying to get them from him. Ah, so you know th- this. This idea that he is operating, um, you know, outside the culture, or or as some outlier, is just wrong. He's right in the thick of the culture. Yeah, he's basically. Yeah, I mean, he's basically in a culture of treasure seekers. Yes, absolutely. He just, he just he was just the best, I guess. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, well, I, I joke with people. You know, if he's in, if you can invoke a treasure spirit and end up founding a church with a one and a half billion dollar nest egg or see one hundred billion dollar yeah. nest egg then it was a pretty successful treasure hunt uh, <laughs> that is a hell of a treasure <laughs> um, yeah but yeah you know there's, there's so many interesting things when you really start digging into all this one of the just curious odd things about all this is again you have this the lore of the bird of the young virginal scryer the lawman has a you know reference to 
protecting virgins uh, from seduction and temptation. By the time Joseph takes Emma up to the hill, they've been married for several months. Uh huh. But Emma never becomes pregnant until after Joseph has allegedly obtained the treasure. Ah. It's it's basically nine months later that their first child is born. Unfortunately, the child is deformed and and dies very quickly. Um, that that but, is unfortunate, but, but it happened you know, a lot back then. Yeah, yeah infant absolutely. death. Was, yeah. yeah. Um, birth control, on the other hand, did not happen a lot, and so it's just, it is no. sort of, it, <laughs> so it is sort of interesting. You know, the timing. Um, Mm-hmm. When, when you look at all that lore and such, you know, the possibility is out there. Obviously not something that, you can prove. Right, right. But, yeah, I, I see what you're saying. There might have been a little uh, hanky-panky on the hill. <laughs> well, not on the hill necessarily, but, <laughs> but an absence of hanky-panky right. before the hill. Um, right, right. Yeah. Huh. So, yeah, the... The story to me is is all sort of fascinating because, like I said, there's enough there. There's enough when you look at the full set of circumstances. Mm-hmm. Joseph is following the the lore and the magical procedures closely enough that I think he had some kind of experience. Yeah, I mean, it sounded like he definitely had an experience. Um, yeah, I mean, I I don't see any reason to doubt that uh, honestly. Like that's. Yeah one of the things that you know we we have to you know trust that people you know are relating experiences that they've had yeah. i mean it's at some point yes you know as, as a non-believer i look at it and say you know at some point he uh, vastly embellished oh yeah i think that's probably the case too yeah i think the thing that i love the most about this is um you know that period of time in American history, the 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 Second Great Awakening with the burned over district and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Like it was, uh, New England must have been a a really uh, fascinating place. Like the number of new religions popping mm-hmm. up, the the treasure hunting that was going on, like the you know the the birth of uh, powwow and the, yeah. its growth to prominence and stuff. Like there was so much cool magic stuff happening well i'll give you another little fun piece okay back in vermont before joseph smith was ever born Uh uh-huh there was a group of men who formed in vermont that called themselves rodsmen Uh uh-huh and these men gathered together with their leader and were using divining rods for finding treasure among among other purposes they called themselves latter-day saints Oh, they claim to get revelation from their rods. Interesting. They ended up, they ended up, um, the last name of the founder was, was wood. And so they were also called the woodsmen. And they didn't turn into the woodsmen of the world. Did they? No, no. Um, okay, good. They actually, right. they, they felt, they <laughs> fell apart because they had predicted the second coming. Ah, and their prediction did not come to pass. And it, it was actually referred to as the Great Woods Scrape because uh, it caused quite the scandal when, when their uh, prediction failed and they basically fell apart at that point. What's interesting is the group definitely involved members of the Cowdery family. Uh-huh. Oliver Cowdery, 
from that family is the one who acted as scribe while Joseph was allegedly translating the gold plates to produce the Book of Mormon. There is huh. there is suggestion that Joseph Sr. was also involved in that group. So that would, I mean, that sounds like that sounds like a distinct possibility. I will caution. Mm-hmm. There, there are a lot of good arguments against that. Okay. In terms of location, you know, <laughs> it is definitely the story that has passed down in the community. A man named Barnaby Frisbee uh, wrote a history of the area uh-huh. that, that included the woodsman, and he specifically, you know, identified the father of Joseph Smith as being one of them. That said, you know, other circumstantial evidence around it makes you kind of, you know, makes you squint a little there. Uh, but it, at yeah. the very least, the Cowderies were involved. And so all, huh. so Oliver Cowdery ends up being inscribed to the Book of Mormon. At a later point, Oliver's, you know, working with Joseph and he says, well, gosh, I wish I could translate like you do. And he, he wants that same gift. Uh-huh. And Joseph Smith has a revelation that is written down and still exists in Mormon scripture addressed to Oliver Cowdery. Huh. And he's criticized that he took no thought save it were to ask. And basically says that you actually have to study these things out and then ask if it be right. But uh-huh. he's told, you do have gifts. You have the gift of and and if you and there's a difference between modern printings and the original manuscript. Modern printings okay. say you have the gift of Aaron. The original manuscripts, which still exist, and you can find them online. Say you have the gift of working with the rod, and it has told you many things. Oh, I mean, I guess that could be the the gift of Aaron, huh? Yes. I mean, yeah. Aaron's rod, right. which again goes huh. back to the Royal huh. Arch, and the Cowderies were deeply it involved does. in the Royal Arch masonry of the area. Oh, huh. rod huh. rod was also synonymous for wand in the time, right? And that tradition, yes, tra- just like in Dungeons and Dragons, <laughs> I, I, was, I was never cool enough to be invited to play, so I don't know. <laughs> uh, but, but that carries down because Heber C. Kimball, one of the original uh-huh. twelve apostles that Joseph called in his church, later on had a rod given to him by Joseph Smith, uh-huh. which he would hold while praying and asking questions and receive revelation by means of that rod. So weird divining rod practice. These things carry on down. Yeah, they do. By the time, by the time the Mormons move to Utah, they are, there is still a current of magic and astrology. Mm -hmm. Um, Particularly in Southern Utah. There's a town in Southern Utah called Parowan that is just, you know, rampant, frankly, with uh, various healing practices, folk magic, astrology, and their you know, pioneer diaries that is, talk about it. And is it, and it's all, is it still kind of Mormon based, all of the stuff happening there now? Well, it's not happening now. This is back in, you know, the, oh, it's not. No, no, this is back now, you know, this is all considered a occult in the ooh scary evil occult sense by Mormonism yeah, and yeah. and would get you promptly excommunicated if you engaged in this Ooh. and refused to participate. 
feel like we need to call on Mormons to be more fun. (laughs) 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 So uh, I think we've given people a lot of interesting stuff to talk about and think about. And um, do you have uh, do you have uh, a bibliography that you could share, do you think, for the for the listeners who want to go do more research and maybe dig some holes in their own. <laughs> that, that metaphor did not work right, but I tried. I tried. <laughs> um, sure. I'll, I'll, I can provide you some, some links, uh, some good articles and such uh, for your show notes. All right. I have, I also have a really important question for you. I, I know a lot of scholars uh, of uh, esoteric and occult topics, uh, never really like to admit that they've tried any of this out, but have you done any treasure hunting yourself? I have not done any treasure hunting specifically. Okay. I, I, okay. Are your fingers crossed when you say that? Are you? (laughs) (laughs) Digging is hard work. (laughs) It is hard work, but you know, today you've got like backhoes and skid loaders and stuff. I mean, you could, (laughs) you know, it's, it is not, let's put it this way. It's not something I would rule out. Um, uh-huh. and you know, to give you an idea how these things, you know, kind of persist even now, um, while Joseph was doing his digs in, in New York in Palmyra, at one point they dug into a local hill, um, by some accounts, as much as 40 feet into the hill uh-huh. and, you know, created a man-made cave. And he may have, by some accounts, done some of his translations in there, various other purposes. Uh-huh. That cave still exists today, oh. and there's actually an interesting uh, little uh, blip in the news right now because the owner of the property that has held it for over 100 years is selling the property, and so now there's a oh. so now among uh, some Mormons who follow this sort of interest are really hoping that somebody will step up and purchase the property. Uh, that has an interest in the history, so it doesn't just get developed and yeah, and the, the cave filled and, in and destroyed. Yeah, uh, yeah, but yeah. I mean, th- these things pass down um, and, and still do draw attention. You know, there there, there uh-huh. are a lot of people interested in Mormon history, both inside and outside of the LDS Church, who do find you know these things fascinating. I I did at, when I was a believer. You know, I I found that was my first interest in magic. Uh-huh. Was learning that Joseph Smith had been doing these things and that made me curious about them. Yeah. So, uh and what about can people uh do you have like a website or something that people can go and check out more of your work? I don't know if do you have much of your Mormon stuff online? Um not a lot of it online. Um of course I have my book Method Infinite, which is uh, uh-huh. Freemasonry. Um, my website is dancingancestors.com. Okay. Uh, that is primarily uh, connected to my practice as, as a spiritual guide, but it has some of my academic work on there. I have uh, I have given a number of presentations at Mormon history conferences and such. Uh, some of those are mm-hmm. floating around out there. Some are not. You know, it's just okay. a little, little, <laughs> little haphazard in that respect. Well, I'll make sure to include a link to your website, and uh, maybe the next time you come on, we can talk about uh, your work as a spiritual guide because that sounds kind of interesting too. And I, I would, I would love to do that. I would love to explore that further. All right. 
Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being on and for talking about all of this cool treasure hunting stuff. I'm I'm so fascinated by it. I I I want to find out how pervasive the treasure hunting stuff was and how geographically spread out it became because uh you know, do you know about like Cahokia, for instance? Yeah. Cahokia would be, you know, again the Hopewell uh civilization, that's where those burial mounds came from. Well, thank you. And thank you again for coming on. Uh this was really fascinating and uh and I'm sure we will talk again soon. All right. Since, you know, we kind of live in the same city. We, we kind of do. <laughs> <laughs> kind of. <laughs> right. Thanks so much, Eric. This has been another episode of the Arnamancy Podcast. Thank you for joining me. I have been your host, Reverend Eric. You can find Arnamancy online at arnamancy.com, and you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere podcasts are found. If you like what you hear, please consider supporting the Arnamancy Project for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash Arnamancy. This is Vanessa Irena, and I'm really excited to announce my new store, Sword and Scythe, where I'll be offering magical art, materia, and services beneath Mars and Saturn. You can visit the store at swordandscythe.com and be sure to sign up for the email list to receive early access to new releases.